what we're going to look at is God's uh, control over uh, the, the nations of men. Now, why is God interested in, in the nations of men? Well, the Bible is absolutely clear on that point, And it starts off with, with our quotation here from the last book of the Bible, Revelation 11, where there's a declaration that the whole of the Bible is leading to an end point. And that is that the Lord Jesus Christ, the man who the Bible calls is the son of God, is going to return to this earth. He's not here now. He's in heaven. And when he does, he's going to reign. And he's going to reign from Jerusalem. This is this point here in the Middle East, capital of Israel. And he's going to reign forever and ever. That's the end point. So the Bible's really explicit that God wants to tell us that the message of the Bible is that God is interested in the nations of, of men where we live. And he's got a plan. And that's the end goal. And that's what our whole series will uh, lead us to think about. It's not new. Uh, it's, it's always been in the Bible, this message. So we took our reading from Matthew chapter 6. When the Lord Jesus was asked by his disciples, teach us to pray. He taught, when you pray, first of all, you praise God, hallowed be your name. And then he says, the first thing you ask for is your kingdom to come, God's kingdom to come on the earth. Now, I want to challenge you, really, um, to compare that message that a servant of Jesus is waiting for God's kingdom to come, waiting for Jesus to return to set up God's kingdom with the message of the churches uh, that you might have heard around us in the world. I don't, I don't hear that message. Uh, what I hear from the established churches is that uh, focus on what we've got here and now. The church is the establishment of God's kingdom, as it were, on the earth. That's the teaching of many churches. And that in the end, you'll go to heaven when you die. Uh, but the Bible says Jesus is going to return to the earth. Your kingdom come where? To the earth, not in heaven. So there's a real difference between the Bible message and what you may have heard. Now, I want to start by um, quoting from the Bishop of Bristol. He wrote this book called Prophecies in 1754. And this is what he said when he was saying, look, I believe the Bible can tell the future and it's proof that there is a God. And he wrote this in 1750s. And he said this, I just want to get two quick quotes from you, which I think are so relevant for us today. He says this, so many ages have passed since the spirit of prophecy has ceased in the world, i.e. the Bible has, has stopped being written, that several persons are apt to imagine that no such thing ever existed and that what we call predictions of the future are only histories written after the events that happened. So he's saying, look, I'm trying to show you that the Bible can tell the future, but you may well be thinking to yourself, well, aren't these things written after the event? And in the conclusion of his book, what he says is, I'm trying to show you that the Bible can tell the future. And he therefore puts a challenge to everybody who reads his book. He says, if I can show you the Bible can predict the future, you're therefore reduced to this necessity, that you must either renounce your senses and deny what you read in your Bibles, <clears throat> together with what you may see and observe in the world, or else you must acknowledge the truth of prophecy and in consequence of that truth, the divine revelation of the Bible. So what he's saying is, I'm going to try and show you in my book that the Bible has predicted the future. And uh, if, you, if you can see that, then you've got a choice. You can either say, well, I don't believe it, or you can say, hang on, this book, the Bible, must be divine because it can predict the future. Because who can predict the future? but a divine being. So that's what we're going to look at <clears throat> today as we go through our subject. The Bible's really clear in the book of Daniel. God, described as the Most High here, he rules where we live, where the kingdoms of men are now, and he gives it to whoever he chooses. 
Even the lowest of men and women are put up in charge of it. Not men of principle always, but it's in God's control. It's in his hand. Now, you might think this is an incredible uh, thing to suggest, that there is a God, or even if there is, that he's interested in the nations of men. You might have seen <coughs> this article. It came in very various forms a few months ago, talking about prophecy and Brexit. And here's the writer, Matthew Paris, who writes in The Times, who had seen biblical prophecies relating to Brexit, which is an issue you may have heard about. Uh, and he says, it's a total lie. It's a fabrication. It's nonsense. And he said that um, he went to Ezekiel 38 <clears throat> because he saw some prophecies. And he says, um, I checked my Bible. There's nothing in the Bible at all about the British, let alone Brexit. It's another leave a lie. Now, we're not going to talk about Brexit today, but I, I highlight this to show the strength of feeling that you might have when you come across prophecy and you think it's nonsense. I've got a strong aversion to this. I'm somebody who follows logical arguments and, and proofs and reasons to believe anything. Uh, and so I, I take this approach. And so Matthew Paris, when he saw quotes uh, of people writing in the 90s or the 1800s about Britain being separate uh, from Europe, looking at Bible prophecy, he, he, he thought that's ridiculous. Uh, and I recognize that's where you might be. You might be in the position that Thomas Newton writes about, where you just think, that's preposterous. If, if the Bible has predicted things, maybe it was probably written after the event. And that's what we want to challenge uh, us to think about uh, for a short while this evening. So God says, I am God. And I want to give you a proof that I'm here. I can declare the end from the beginning. From ancient times, the things that haven't even happened yet. And if I can do that, says God, uh, then this book's got to be divine. And there's a reason for you to look into it further. So what we want to do is just focus on three prophecies <clears throat> just over the last 100 years. Now, there are many, many more prophecies. I reckon uh, possibly a third of the Bible is related to prophecy. Uh, but we're just going to look at these three in the last 100 years and get you to test. You might think to yourself, this is preposterous, but uh, if you feel that, then I'll just give you a stick to beat me with uh, at the end while we go through it. Because, uh, you know, in the 1750s, Bible students are saying, well, look at the proof of the Bible. Well, we've had a lot of prophecies fulfilled since the 1750s. And I want to just go through a few which I firmly believe show this book to have the ability to tell the future in the last 100 years. The rise and fall of the Ottoman Empire, the reestablishment of the of nation of Israel, and the formation of a European Union. And then at the end, just want to give us a flavor of what will be going on in the rest of our talks. What's the world ending up to? Not just a European Union, something far greater, a world union, the kingdom of God on earth. Okay, so how old is the Bible? If, if we uh, follow the argument that, hang on, what if these prophecies could have been written after the events they talk about? Then they're just histories, not prophecies. Well, uh, we've made this point a number of times in this hall that the Bible is very old indeed, and no one disputes that. If you want to go to the British Library, you can see some of the oldest Bibles there are extant in the world. And we know we've got texts of the New Testament that go right the way back to the second or even first century. That's 2,000 years ago. The Dead Sea Scrolls, which talk about the Old Testament, which is the, the oldest part of the Bible, some of them are dated to 300 years before Jesus. That's 2,300 years ago. So even though some of the Bible claims to be 3,500 years old, no one disputes that at least 
300 years before Christ is the date of the Old Testament, and at least 2,000 years is the date of the New Testament. That's not in dispute. So it's a very, very old book. And since you and I are going to discuss prophecies that have been fulfilled in the last 100 years, the Bible says it was written way, way before that, centuries, millennia before that. And that's a really important point. So I'm not talking about history, things written after events, but things written before. Now we're going to look at the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And I want to take um, just this quote from Irenaeus. Now, Irenaeus was a man who lived towards the end of the second century. And he put a date, really, on the book of Revelation. So this is an extra-biblical source, a source outside the Bible that says it's really old. So Irenaeus writes that this book of Revelation, the apocalyptic vision, uh, was given not a very long time before him, he says. It was towards the end of Domitian's reign. Now, Domitian was an emperor of Rome towards the end of the first century, so AD 96 and so on. So there are a lot of reasons to suggest and to believe that the Bible really is very old, in particular the book of Revelation, which we're going to look at, that it was written right at the end of of the first century, around uh, AD 100. So that's uh, something for perhaps you can look at, and if anyone wants these slides with the quotes, you can look at that afterwards. So let's open our Bibles then to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, as we said, this is, this is an ancient book, 2,000 years old, and it made a prediction of something that would happen before Jesus comes back to the earth, before uh, the kingdom of God that the servants of Jesus will pray for to come to this earth. There's something that's got to happen. Many things, in fact, but there's something in particular we want to look at. And that's our first subject here, the rise and the fall of the Ottoman Empire. So here's... Uh, an artist's impression of the book of Revelation that goes through time and it talks about prophecies starting right the way back at the first century going all the way in incredible detail until the time when the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and beyond. We want to look at just this period here where it says Jesus is going to return in the book of Revelation chapter 16. Now Revelation chapter 16, uh, I've got a King James Version. Lawrence read from a new King James Version. Um, so mine's slightly older English. Uh, has everybody got a Bible, by the way? Anyone want one at the front? Everyone got one? All right. So Revelation chapter 16, uh, verse 15, is a verse that says, this is Jesus speaking, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. I'm going to come back. I'm going to come like a thief in the night. So this is talking about when Jesus returns. And a lot of Bible students have been keenly interested in that because if that's talking about Jesus' return, we want to be ready for it. So here's what Joseph Mead uh, wrote about in 1640. So he looked at this whole book of Revelation, chapter 16, which is this period which is described as vials or bowls that lead up to Jesus' return. It really uh, requires a lot of effort, but we're not going to focus on all the detail. But look what Joseph Mead said. He said, well, uh, looking at the Revelation chapter 16, I think there's a lot of things that are going to happen Uh, go through history on the Ottoman Empire and the Roman uh, Empire. Uh, And it's going to lead up to a point when there's going to be drying up of the Euphrates. Why did he say that? Look what it says in Revelation chapter 16, verse 12. It says, before Jesus comes back in verse 15, the sixth angel, he poured out his vial or his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And the water was dried up that the ways of the kings of the east might be prepared. So what Joseph Mead was, he said he looked at history and he 
said, well, there's lots of events that God set out that's going to happen before Jesus returns, prophecies. And he got a lot of them right. We're not going to go into the detail of it. You can do that in your own time. But he predicted what would happen at each one of these bowls that were poured out on the earth. And it's history that goes through time towards the time uh, of Jesus' return. And this Euphrates uh, being dried up. Now, what is the Euphrates? It's a river. Here's a river. What does the Bible say about rivers? Well, Isaiah chapter 8 tells us that when the Bible uses the symbol of a river, it's the symbol of a great empire. So Isaiah chapter 8 is talking about the Assyrian Empire. If you go to the British Museum, you can see huge amounts of uh, artifacts from Assyria that fit with Bible history. And it tells us there that Assyria is like an empire that's flooding its banks, this mighty Assyrian empire. It's like a river. In Revelation chapter 9, it talks about another uh, em- emphasis on this Euphrates power that's flooding its banks. So it's like, like a power, uh, an empire. Well, what empire came from the Euphrates that's re- referred to here in Revelation chapter 16? The Bible's saying that there's a power that's going to be referred to as the Euphrates power, which is going to dry up, and that's going to happen before Jesus returns. Which power has its uh, base in the Euphrates, that mighty river? Well, that's well known in history, the Ottoman Empire. Now, the Ottoman Empire lasted for many centuries. So from the 14th century, it started off here and expanded like a flood across the known world, a huge empire was the Ottoman Empire that lasted for an extremely long period of time. And while that empire was growing, Bible students said in 1649, here's John Owen, he was looking at Revelation chapter 16 and he said, "Um, what do you think this Euphrates power must be referring to in Revelation 16? Well, it's the Turkish power. Though it's proud in my day, says John Owen, uh, it's going to be dried up because God said that's got to happen before Jesus' return. Now, in 1649, the Ottoman Empire was getting really stronger and stronger. Yet he said, well, it doesn't look likely in my time, but at some point, God's going to cause that empire to dry up. has to, because it says here the Euphrates is going to dry up before Jesus comes as a thief. William Burkitt, in 1804, also said, well, what, what, what is the Euphrates referred to in Revelation 16? It's a book of symbol and sign. It's really difficult. Well, he thinks it's probably the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire. And he refers to many other Bible students who've referred to that drying up and lessening of its empire. John Thomas, in 1861, referred to the same thing. He said, well, that water is not real water. It's the political Euphrates. It's the the Ottoman Empire, which is going to dwindle before uh, Jesus returns to the earth. And that happened, of course. That mighty flood of the Ottoman Empire dwindled and dried up. And what we've got left is the country of Turkey, which is uh, it's still there. It's not completely dried up, but nothing like its former glory. Now, that's a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Now, what's most remarkable about this is when the Bible was written 2,000 years ago, was there an Ottoman Empire? No, there most certainly was not. You had to wait 1,400 years for there to be anything like a Euphrates power, an Ottoman power, or something that would fit with what Revelation 16 says is is this Euphrates power, the great river that's going to dry up. So when the Bible predicted this, there was nothing that fitted with that. But over the centuries, in the 1600s, Bible students started saying, oh, now we can see what this is. It's the Ottoman Empire, this mighty Euphrates river that spreads its banks. But that has to dry up before... 
Jesus returns. And that is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Now, again, you might say to yourself, well, it sounds fantastical. I'd ask you to do two things. Check for yourself, when was the Bible really written? Can I prove to myself it was written way before there was ever a Euphrates power? And then ask yourself how Bible students, and this is just a tiny quote of many who wrote about it, how did they write in the 16th, 17th, 1800s that that great power would dry up, wouldn't disappear entirely? It's like a, a flood of a river that's flooded, but then it comes back, but it's, it's no longer the strength that it used to be. So that's the first thing, the rise and the fall of the Ottoman Empire that happened. Uh, when, when did the Ottoman Empire dry up? 1917, right, at the end of the First World War. That's the well-known time when the sick man of Europe, as it was described then, dried up. And that started a whole chain of events that started to fulfill other Bible prophecies. So that's number one. Number two is closely related to it, the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. Now, the Bible talks in detail about how the Jewish people would be scattered from their land. We're not going to talk about that prophecy, but that happened. That's well known in history. And the Jewish people have been out of their land for about 2,000 years. But Bible students said, well, they've got to come back. And here's what Samuel Craddock said in 1696. Focusing again on this Euphrates power, he says, the Euphrates, in probability, is not to be understood literally, here of the very river Euphrates, but of the people about it, the Ottoman Empire. And the water thereof was dried up. That's the Turkish Empire was diminished and lessened in order to the restoring of the Jews. So Mr. Craddock said, not only is the Bible telling us that this Ottoman Empire has got to dry up, that's for a reason, because God's interested in the nations of men, because he's got a plan. And so he looked for two events that were connected to one another. One, this Turkish Empire, which in his time was only getting stronger, but it would diminish and lessen, and that that would allow the Jews, who'd been scattered from their land by the Roman Empire uh, about 1,900 years uh, before our time, are going to be restored. That's what he looked for. didn't happen anywhere near his time. But because he believed the Bible, he said, look, it might not happen in my time, but it's going to happen. And that's how he was able to write these things. Many others wrote about it, too. So here's a man called uh, Robert Roberts, who's writing in 1885. He talks about the drying up of the, of the Ottoman Empire. And at the bottom there, he says, when that happens, the Holy Land, which is the ancient land of Israel, the, the, the land which the Bible focuses on, will be liberated from the only obstacle that restrains the full development of impending Jewish restoration under English protection. Uh, and there is nothing between us and the precious parenthesis in verse 15 of Revelation 16, behold, I come as a thief. Now, forget that English protection thing for the moment. I don't want to discuss that. Uh, what, what we're saying is that the man writing in 1885 said, I agree with Mr. Craddock. The Bible says that when the Turkish Empire dried up, and that happened in 1917, that's going to allow the fulfillment of Bible prophecy that the Jews are going to come back. And that leads on to what he describes as the precious parenthesis. Behold, I come as a thief when Jesus says he's going to come back. So we're, we're getting to the time now in history where Jesus is going to come back. When these men wrote, none of these things had happened. Now, why did they say they were looking for the Jews to be restored to their land? This tribe of people that had been scattered for many centuries and treated horrifically and persecuted. Because the Bible said it. So here's an example. In Ezekiel 38, it describes... 
in the latter years. That's often a phrase in the Bible that says right at the time at the end when Jesus is going to come back, which is the focus of the Bible. You, God says to his people, the Jews, that the Jews are God's special people, as the Bible uh, declares. You're going to be brought back from the sword, from the terrible persecutions you'll, you'll face, and you'll be gathered on the mountains of Israel. You'll come back to your land. Uh, and uh, you'll be back to a land which was once desolate, brought back from the nations, and you're going to dwell safely. So verses like this led Bible students to say, well, God fulfilled his prophecy that his people would be thrown out of their land. Uh, and if you want to know the detail of this, many other writers like uh, Bishop Newton here go to all the detail of the fulfillment of Bible prophecy and the Jews being scattered around the world. But they're going to come back. Here's just a couple of other ones in the, in the prophecy of Jeremiah, where God says a lot of other the ancient nations are going to cease. And we know that that happened. But you, ancient nation of Israel, you won't be ceased to exist. I will scatter you, but I won't make a complete end of you. And though other nations will, will, will disappear, I won't make a complete end of you. You're going to come back. So that's why Robert Mayton, for example, in 1646, wrote exactly on these things. He said, look, I'm looking for the Jewish restoration into a visible kingdom in Judea. And the Saviour's visible reign over them, except the S and F. The Saviour's visible reign over them. So these are what Bible students looked for. They said, look, we're living in a time where the Jews have been scattered for well over a millennia. But he said, look, the Bible says they're going to come back into a visible kingdom. The Jews are going to have their land back again. Now, we're not making a political statement here about you know, the terrible suffering of the Palestinian people and the Jews in their land. That's not what we're talking about at all. What we are talking about is being fascinated and interested in the fulfillment of what the Bible said was going to happen. That's what Robert Mayton said would happen. And when the Jews get their land back, the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to come back after that. Some other writers, French writers, and they're all there translated on the internet for anybody who wants to read them. Pierre Jourieu, 1687. He looked for a time when the Jews will have their great uh, promises fulfilled at the end of the world. What he means by that is when, when Jesus returns. He says there's a miracle that's happened. God's preserved this nation, and that proves that there is a God irrefutably. He says, look, no other nation's been preserved like they have. That's a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. But then he says, why have they been preserved for these 2,000 years? Why would God do that? And he says... This plainly speaks that God preserves them, the Jewish people, for some great work. And so he's focused on what God's doing with the Jewish people. And he expects them to come back into their land. Thomas Newton, our friend, the, the Bishop of Bristol, in 1754, he wrote a lot about this in this book. And he says, the Jews have been cast out of their land until... the." Uh, the time of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, will be ended. And the Jews, he says, shall be restored. 1754, he said the Jewish people are going to be restored. Uh, for what reason? He says, so that the prophecies will be accomplished to the greatest exactness. And he says that if that happens, 
if sometime in the future, distant to me, says the Bishop of Bristol, the Jews come back to their land, why wouldn't anyone then believe that the remaining parts of the same prophecies will be as fully accomplished too in their restoration and the other things? So what, what the Bishop of Bristol sets before us here is he says, look, I'm trying to tell you the Bible has predicted the future. I'm looking further ahead from my time. And wouldn't it be amazing if the Jews do return? That's what the Bible said. And if they do, there's even more amazing prophecies. After that, the return of Jesus. Now, I challenge you to find any bishop who talks about prophecy today, any pastor, any vicar of the established churches. And that's not to attack people unnecessarily. What I'm trying to point out is that the whole purpose of prophecy, to give us confidence that there is a God, that he's got a plan with this earth, that there's a great hope for all of us and for this world, has been lost. The churches don't talk about these things. They barely read the Bible. There was a time when people did, and people were fascinated to see the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Now, another man, just one more quote. This is the last one. John Thomas, writing in 1849, a little bit closer to our time, says, the restoration of the Jews or of Israel back to their land, having been scattered, is really important. It's, the Bible's full of it. He says that the pre-adventual, that's before Jesus returns, colonization of what was known as Palestine in the time of uh, 1849 uh, is, is what the Bible says. And the Jews will return on political principles and they'll return in unbelief of the Messiah of Jesus. Now that's a really amazing thing to say. Was, was, was this man a prophet? Was Thomas Newton a prophet? Pierre Jurieu a prophet? Of course not. I'm not suggesting anything of the sort. They were just Bible readers who said, look, we believe this book's divine and it's predicted these things. Will they come to pass? Well, they didn't in their time, but they did in ours. In 1948, the Jewish people did come back. The state of Israel was reborn. And all of the, all of the prophecies that were written about in books like this when people were fascinated and excited about the Bible have happened. Yet, where are they spoken about? Where do the churches now speak about these things? I put it to you that they don't because they've lost the focus. Christendom has gone astray from what the Bible taught and teaches still to us. So though you won't hear it, what we're trying to get you is to be interested, to look into it for yourself. Check everything that I say, that anyone who speaks here says, because it's important for you to decide for yourself whether this is real. But the Jews did come back in 1948. John Thomas said that would happen 100 years before it did. These men way, way before centuries before. How did they say that? Because they read their Bibles. And that's a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Now, most religious groups have a statement of faith. They have a statement which sets out what they believe. Christadelphians, which I'm a Christadelphian, this uh, seminar has been arranged by Christadelphians, we have a statement of faith. And in that statement of faith, which was written in 18 or finished in 1898, there's a reference to this. Now, our statement of faith, notice, this isn't really important because it's, it's what you know, men did their best to write. It's, it, this is important because this is the word of God. This is the Bible. This is the evidence for why, why that's written. So the Christadelphian statement of faith, which just is a simple statement to say this is, what, this is what we believe the Bible says, refers to this, the Jewish return. It says this, that the kingdom uh, of God, will, which, which he will establish, will be the kingdom of Israel restored and the territory it former occupied. 
and the land bequeathed for an everlasting possession to Abraham and his descendants, Christ, uh, by covenant. So, uh, you know, that's what the Bible talks about, that there's a special plan that God's got with Israel. And the Christadelphian Statement of Faith says that the restoration of the kingdom again to Israel will involve the ingathering of God's chosen scattered nation, the Jews, and their reinstatement in the land of their fathers. Now, the other, the other words I don't need to focus on right now, but that's what the Christadelphians have been saying uh, for well over 100 years. Why? Some, some Christadelphian a prophet? Of course not. That would be a ridiculous thing to suggest. The point is that Christadelphians, like many other Bible reading groups, have said, well, the, the Bible tells us that that's going to happen. So in 1898, some men and women got together and they said, well, that's what the Bible says, so we'll set that out. And that's happened. Can you imagine writing that statement that we're looking for before Jesus returns, the Jewish people to come back, to be gathered back from the scattered nations where the Jews are and reinstated in the land of their fathers. That's happened. That's a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Now, I want to just focus on just one matter of specificity. Just look how specific some prophecies can be. We've been looking at the broad sweep at the moment, the Euphrates power drying up and the Jews coming back. But just, I want to give you just a tiny flavor of how specific prophecy can be. So in Ezekiel 38, verse 12, that passage we looked at earlier about the Jews returning to the land, it says there that when the Jews come back, they're going to dwell in the midst of the land, the middle of the land of Israel, which is, uh, the Hebrew word is like the belly button, as it were. So here's a man who wrote in 1981, he said, well, if the Bible says that, we expect the Jews to be on the middle of the land. Well, what's the middle of the land of Israel? These are the mountains of Israel, which Ezekiel 38 says the Jews would be on. So here's a quotation from Ezekiel 38. The Israelites will gather on the mountains of Israel. So Bible students have said, look, we expect that when the Jews come back to their land, ancient land of Israel, they'll be inhabiting not just certain parts of it, but on the mountains of Israel. The mountains of Israel are known today as the West Bank. See how high they are? Whose land is the West Bank? That's Palestinian land. That's Palestinian territory. Yet the Bible said, well, the Jews are going to take that land. Has that happened? Of course it has. Here's an example of settler growth, the Jews, on the West Bank. Those mountains of Israel, the middle of the land that the Bible said the Jews would take. In 1980. Two, there was just 21,000 Jews, settlers, living there. Uh, back in 2015, it's now 400,000. It's growing rapidly. And you'll have seen some news recently about the Prime Minister of Israel saying, I'm going to build a lot more settlements in that area of the West Bank. Now, obviously, the Palestinians are irate about this. And we're not making a political statement here. What we are remarking upon is the fact that the Bible said, when the Jews come back, just one of the many specific prophecies, they will inhabit the middle of the land, the mountains of the land. And they did. And in the 80s, it looked like, well, there's hardly any of them there. Look how many are there now. That's a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. So that's how Bible students say, well, that's what we expect to see. And that's what's happened. So that's number two. So prophecy number one, that there would be a mighty Ottoman Empire, and that would dry up. That would allow then, once the Ottoman Empire that controlled Israel dried up, the Jews to come back in their land. And they got their land back and established a state in 1948. Just one more thing that I want to look at. 
in the last hundred years. Did you know that the Bible predicted that there would be a European Union? Let me show you what I mean. So in 1897, Samuel Garrett talked about the fact that in Bible prophecy, <clears throat> there would be something like a United States of Europe. And that would fulfill Bible prophecy. Now, we're going to look at why he said this in a moment. But I just want you to sit back and, and ask yourself, how on earth someone could say that? What was the state of Europe in 1897? Constant war for then and many decades afterwards. No one would suggest that Europe would ever come together in a United States of Europe. But he wasn't looking at what was happening in his time or what looked likely in his time. He just said, look, the Bible says that's going to happen, so I'll just write that down. John Thomas talked about the Bible talking about something that looks like a European Commonwealth, and that'll be a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. What about that in 1861? Robert Roberts talked about, he, reading the Bible, the Europeans will come together in what's called a corporate unity, forming a unanimous policy. Well, Europe's been torn apart by war for, for all the period since that and after it. Yet, these Bible students said, that's what we expect to happen. And they read their Bible in Revelation chapter 17. So we had a look at Revelation 16, which talks about that Euphrates power and the, the return of Jesus. Now, Revelation 17 is where these men went to with other Bible passages to come up and say, this is what we'd expect, the United States of Europe. Now, you've got an incredible image here that looks like this. Here it is, Revelation chapter 17, uh, verse 1. I'll read it to you from my Bible. So um, this is the prophecy. So it's full of symbol and it's really difficult to understand. But we just want to pick apart a couple of uh, points to, to hopefully pique your interest. It says in Revelation 17, verse 1, Come, I will show unto you the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters. And it says in verse 3, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman, there she is on the chart, sit upon a scarlet-coloured beast full of names and blasphemy. It had seven heads, it had ten horns, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and she had a, a, on her forehead, verse 5, Mystery Babylon, the great mother of harlots. What an incredible vision to see. Now, many people have looked at things like this and said it's preposterous, it means nothing. It's the, it's the rantings of a man long ago. What does it mean? But Bible students said, well, no, we have a, a respect for this book. And we believe this is telling us about the future. And that's how we're able to write that there will be United States of Europe. So I want to just take you through the thought process and see what you think. So what is this great beast? Now, if we went to the book of Daniel, which we're not going to go to, the book of Daniel describes all the nations of men as beasts. So whereas we might think of men look at their nations and say they're proud entities that will last forever, God says, I want you to understand that to me they consider considered as beasts. Uh, uh, not not uh, edifying beasts, but terrifying things that are going to be removed when Jesus comes back and sets up his government that will last forever. So this is just one of those beasts. But what type of beast is it? Well, just have a look. Uh, at verse 9. It tells us what those seven heads mean something. <clears throat> so this beast that's got seven heads says in verse 9, here's the mind that has wisdom. If you want to be looking at Bible prophecy, well, think about this. The seven heads 
are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, a woman in Bible prophecy is often described as a religious community. But that, that woman, she's sitting upon seven mountains, which is the city of seven mountains, well known in history. Rome. Rome advertises itself as the city of seven hills. Now, this is not something that uh, I'm making up or, or suggesting is a kind of, yeah, kind of uh, unique reference that not many people know about. Everybody knows that Rome is the city of seven hills, and this ancient reference has been known for centuries. And here they are, the seven hills of Rome. It tells us that this beast, therefore, is somehow associated with Rome because those seven heads are seven mountains where the woman sits. But it's not just that. Look at verse 10. And those seven heads represent seven kings. And at the time when John was writing Revelation, five of them had fallen. There's one more at the time of John and another's not yet come. What on earth does that mean? Well, Bible students said, right, well, we know that those seven heads of the, that beast are the seven hills of Rome. We also know that there were seven forms of Roman government. And I'm going to show you some quotes to prove that that's what historians tell us. And at the time of John, these had gone. It says in Revelation 17, verse 5, there are seven kings, five are fallen. At the time of John, the earlier forms of Roman government were gone. In the time of John, he lived in the form of the imperial form of Rome, the sixth head. And there's one that hasn't even come yet. After John, the Goths came down and they swept away Rome. They sacked it and they set up what's called the Gothic kingdom of Rome. Now, that's remarkable. And so Tacitus, um, uh, this, is, this is Livy, sorry, says, well, look, I just want to show, in, he's writing in, in the first century, these are the forms of Roman government at his time. Regal, consuls, decemvirs, and kings and tribunes. So he says that at the time of John, John's writing in the first century, those are the five forms of government. That's when John was writing. You're living in the sixth one, John, and there's going to be one that's going to come after you. Tacitus says the same. There are the forms of Roman government, which are well known in ancient time. After them came the emperors, and then after them came the Goths. So it's really interesting that the Bible students were able to say, right, well, we're looking at Rome here, because Rome, those seven heads represent the seven hills of Rome and the seven forms of government of Rome. And at the time of John, he was living in the sixth head. There was going to be another type of government that came after, the Gothic head. There wasn't another form. There had only been seven, so that fulfilled Bible prophecy. Did you know Sir Isaac Newton? Not Thomas Newton this time, but Sir Isaac Newton was a keen Bible student. Anyone ever looked at the, uh, the, the Newton project? Anything that Thomas, uh, Sir Isaac Newton has ever written is all on the internet now. And by far the largest amount of his writings are Bible prophecy. You can go and see them all on the internet. And he looked at this Bible prophecy with great interest. And he said, well, what are those? I, he he, he recognised that this refers to Rome, the Roman hills and the Roman form of government. But he said, well, what are those ten horns that sit on that Roman beast? He said, well, this is what I think they are. I think those ten horns that sit on that, the, the Roman beast are the, Roman, are the kingdoms that came out of the ancient Roman Empire. And that was his suggestion of what those ten horns represented. There they are in verse 12 of Revelation 17. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings. So, so Isaac Newton said, well, that's what after the, the Roman Empire collapsed, you've got lots of kingdoms that came out. And that's what I think those ten horns represent. How does that help us with predicting that there could be a European empire? 
because it tells us in uh, Revelation chapter 17, verse 10, that the ten horns which you saw upon the beast, verse 17, they're going to do something. God puts in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom to the beast until the works of God have been fulfilled. Let me show you this. It tells us there that those ten horns, those ten kingdoms, are going to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast. What what does that mean, that they would give their kingdom to the beast? Well, look at verse 13. It says there, these have one mind, and they're going to give their power and their strength to this beast. Now, we've suggested that this beast is a Roman beast because of the seven heads. And Bible students said, well, we're looking then at all of the kingdoms that are left on the ancient Roman Empire, giving their strength, their ability to take decisions, and their power, their army or their influence, to this central unit. And we think that'll be a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. At the end of Revelation 17, and I recognize this is complicated, but I want to give you uh, some sense of why people think the European Union is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. This, this, this uh, prophecy f- uh, explains itself. It tells us the waters where the woman sits, what are they? Well, they're peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. The ten horns, well, they're nations, and they're going to agree to give their kingdom to this central unit of the beast. The woman is the great city. What's the great city? Rome. So Bible students said, we're looking for a time when there are lots of peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. That's what Revelation 17, verse 15 says. Unilaterally giving their power and their strength to one unit, and it's all associated with Rome. That's what we're looking for. Power associated with Rome. Many peoples, languages, and nations voluntarily giving their power to a central unit. Has that ever happened? That is the definition of the European Union. 1957, the Treaty of Rome established the basis of the European Union. Here's a copy of it, which is owned by a man who worked in the Foreign Office, and he was extremely worried about the European Union because it says it's an ever closer union of the European peoples, and that's what Britain's always been scared of. But that's unique in all of history. Do you know of any, any empire which has ever gone on the basis of countries unilaterally deciding, well, voluntarily give you my strength and my power? Mr. Barroso, who's the former president of the European Commission, says that Europe is unique in history. He says, <clears throat> I can compare the EU to the creation of, of the organization of empire. We have the dimension of empire. What we have is the first non-imperial empire, 27 countries that fully decided to work together and pool their sovereignty, unique in the history of mankind. I put it to you, the Bible said there would come a group of people, nations and tongues, different languages, and they'd come together and they would unilaterally and voluntarily give their power and strength to a central unit. That has never happened in the whole history of the world. There's been one or two experiments of it that I know of in history, and they they collapsed after a couple of years, and they were only a couple of nations. What we're seeing here is a fulfillment of something that's never happened before. A group of nations saying, we're going to voluntarily give our power to a central unit, and that is what Europe describes itself as, something unique in all of history, never, ever happened before. And it's based on the Treaty of Rome, and the Roman Empire is at its centre. 
Mr Barroso says that uh, we're a federation of nation states. Sharing of sovereignty is what we're about. That's what Europe's about. That's what the Bible said would happen. In fact, did you know that Europe, the whole basis of it is Roman? This, this Roman beast that we're looking at here. Even the currency of the euro is based on the Roman denarius and the aureus. That were the, the old pan-European currencies. This is the new one. So it's a re-establishment of a Roman Empire. When Tony Blair talks about these things, he says, Europe today isn't about uh, peace, it's about power. You shall give your strength and your power to the beast. And that's what Europe's all about. So in summary then, when you go to Europe and you see that, this is one of the sculptures that's there in the outside the Concilium in Brussels, and you can see that Europe's based on the system of a woman riding a beast. That's an ancient Greek mythology. Well, that's also in the Bible, that countries would come together and voluntarily give their power to a central unit. And that's never happened before, except when Europe, the European Union, was formed. And that's what led men like uh, Samuel Garrett in 1897 said, it doesn't look likely in my time, but there will be a United States of Europe. So I know that that might sound ridiculous to you, and it's a, it's a significant challenge, but I want to ask you, after what I've said, and you may think I've explained it very poorly, and I might accept that, but I still want to ask you, how did a man write that there would be a United States of Europe in 1897, and many others besides? Because they looked at their Bible. That's how they were able to say that. One last thing. What are all these kingdoms going to do? What's Europe going to do? Well, Revelation 17, verse 14 says, they're going to make war with the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? He's the Lord Jesus. The one who's described as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So not only are we looking for a Europe that comes together, we're looking for it to have military power. Do you know what's happening in Europe right now? The formation of a European army. There's been an announcement this month of how that's going to be taken forward. Bible students have been looking forward to that. Well, not looking forward to it, shall we say, but looking to see that happen for centuries. All these things are happening in our time. So what I want to uh, just conclude then with this. I hope that I've just piqued your interest to say, did the Bible really foretell the rise and fall of the Ottoman Empire? It was written, this book, 2,000 years ago, long before there was an Ottoman Empire. Did it really forecast that the Jewish nation scattered for 2,000 years would come back to their land against all the odds like no other nation has ever done? Yes, it did, says the Bible. Did it really talk about the, the remnants of the Roman Empire in our time coming together as a European Union and getting strong by sharing all their power voluntarily? Yes, it did. That's what Bible students have been explicitly looking for. So I want to prick your interest, and hopefully you'll look into those things and say, well, if the Bible can foretell these things, could it really be true that this is a divine book? And could it really be true that the real focus of it, that Jesus is going to return, could happen? Because that's what Daniel 2 says. In the days of these kings, and that's the kings that are left in the fragments of kingdoms that we read in Daniel 2, which is another prophecy, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which isn't going to be destroyed. All the kingdoms of men will pass away. Those beasts that, that, that uh, are, are evil in many of the ways they operate. They do their best, many governments, but it's still so many people in dire poverty. And there's so much violence and corruption around. God says, I'm going to wipe that away. And Jesus is going to come back and set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Could that really be true? Could it really be true that God's saying to you and I right now, 
I am God. Here's the evidence of it. You can't possibly make a decision, I put it to you, in listening to a talk for 45 minutes on whether you think it is or not. What I'm trying to get you to do is look for yourself and test everything I've said and check it uh, and do your own reading. Could that really be true, that God's screaming out from the Bible to you and saying, I can tell the future, and there is a, a plan for the earth, and Jesus is going to come back to set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and you can be part of it. That's the challenge of the Bible, which I do very much you'll, you'll, you'll take up as we look at the next parts of our, our studies about the kingdom of God being set up on the earth.